happen to you. If you have your Bibles this morning, and I hope that you do, I invite you to turn with me to the book of Ezra. Thank you for those who have been following along these past few months. Uh, this morning we turn to Ezra chapter 8. Uh, Adam has faithfully walked us through uh, Ezra chapter 7 these past couple of weeks. And uh, it's been, uh, we've now, Ezra is on the scene. We've met Ezra, know who he is, know what he is tasked to do. And we're going to uh, see as he, uh, as he sets off on his journey uh, this morning. The past couple of weeks we've seen Ezra and his appeal to the king and uh, Artaxerxes, um, the, the letter that was written to him and ultimately Artaxerxes sending him and this second wave off. And so let's jump into our text this morning because we have a lot of ground to cover um, in a very um, eloquent way. We're just going to call this three chunks of text. Can we do that? So uh, we're going to divide this into three instead of reading this all this morning uh, in, our, uh, in one time, which our text this morning is Ezra 8, 1 through 23. So we're going to take it three chunks. So chunk one, we good? Ready to go? All right, so chunk one is verses uh, 1 through 14. So let's read this and then back up and see what the, uh, the word of the Lord says and means. So Ezra 8, starting in verse 1, These are the heads of their fathers' houses, and this is the genealogy of those who went up with me from Babylonia in the reign of Artaxerxes the king, of the sons of Phinehas, Gershom, of the sons of Ithamar, Daniel, of the sons of David, Hattush, of the sons of Shekaniah, who was of the sons of Perosh, Zechariah, with whom were registered 150 men, of the sons of Pehath Moab, Elihonai, and the son of Zechariah, and with him 200 men, of the sons of Zatu, Shekaniah, the son of Jaazil, and with him 300 men, of the sons of Aden, Ebed, the son of Jonathan, and with him 50 men, of the sons of Elam, uh, Jesahiah, the son of Athaliah, and with him 70 men, of the sons of Shiptiah, Zebediah, the son of Michael, and with him 80 men, of the sons of Joab, Obadiah, the son of Jehiel, and with him 218 men, of the sons of Benai, Shelemith, the son of Josephiah, and with him 160 men, the sons of Bebabai, uh, Zechariah, the sons of Bebabai, and 20, with him 28 men, the sons of Asgad, Johanan, the son of Hakatan, and with him 110 men, of the sons of uh, Adonikam, those who came later, and their names being Eliphalet, Jehuel, Shemahiah, and with him 60 men, of the sons of Bigviah, Uthai, and Zechor, and with them 70 men. A lot of names, right? And uh, I know what you're thinking. Here is another genealogy. What do we do with this? Why another genealogy? Haven't we had enough already? Well, this is actually not quite a genealogy, although it says this is a genealogy. So how do we reconcile that? This is a not a, typically when we say genealogy, it is one list from beginning to end that traces ancestry or family tree, a lineage. Uh, this is a list of many genealogies. It is a list of the people who are going with Ezra uh, back up to Jerusalem from Babylon and who they are and the families they are from. And so it's not a running genealogy like we see in other places in the Bible. 
Um, and in this group, there are three, in this group of people that list about 1,600 or so men, we see roughly, probably between, depending on how you count them, between five and 7,000 people represented in this group that's listed right here. And in this group, there's three groups. There's always groups of three, right? And so in the first two people, we see two priests. Uh, there in the very beginning, uh, when it talks about the sons of Phinehas, Gershom, and the sons of Ithamar, Daniel, these two, uh, we know, are from the lineage of priests. And the second one, Hattush, is from the lineage of David. So kind of setting them aside, you have those, those three guys, two priests and a prince, if you will, which brings us to this bulk of people, uh, the rest of the people, the remaining families, 11 families, uh, and all of, the, of these 11 families, all I'm sorry, 12 families, all except one have something significant about them. And so the question is, why this list? And we were talking in, uh, in our uh, Sunday morning Bible study this morning with our students. There are no wasted words in God's word. Everything we have, as Paul tells us in Timothy, is good for teaching, correcting, rebuking, and training. And so why? There's no, you know, I just need to some, I need some filler, Ezra said. Let me just throw some names on here and just confuse people in future generations. No, there is a reason. And we see that he chose these two, uh, these two priests. We see that he, he called out the son of David. But what about the rest of these families? All these names that I just struggled with and that you kind of giggle at. It's just tough to, to say, right? Why all of these families? Why these particular families? Now, if you were to look into Ezra 2, we don't have to go back there. Whenever we saw the other list of those who were called out in the first realm, all of these except one, those families line up. So these remaining families, all of them, their main family has already gone back to or up to Jerusalem. And this is not just a few years later. This is roughly 80 years later. So depending on how you count generations, three or four generations later, um, there's still some of those original families left in Babylon. And so we understand uh, so we understand that connection here. When you go to Ezra chapter 2 to Ezra chapter 8, we see the rest of the families that did not go in the initial wave of exiles returning to Jerusalem. Now the rest of the family goes back with them. So the question would be, why wouldn't the whole family clan have gone together in the beginning? Why didn't all of these families go in Ezra chapter 2? Now we can do a little speculating here, and we're careful to do much speculation on Sunday mornings. We don't, uh, but I think some healthy speculation is okay. The most logical conclusion is that they did not want to leave, uh, because what we see, because what we do know, is why the first group left. If you go back with me to Ezra chapter one and verse five. This was the, the first wave of those going from Babylon to Jerusalem. It says, Then rose up the heads of the fathers' houses, just as we see the heads of these houses in chapter 8, of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. So God's spirit stirred in a group of people in Ezra chapter 1 to go back to Jerusalem. But not everyone went. We know that so many were left behind in Babylon. Now, some would say that uh, it's because they just didn't want to go, these who remained, that they were comfortable, that they had found new lives, they had never been to Jerusalem, and so they were not stirred up by God to go. 
So again, that's a little speculation, but now they are ready to go because we see they are about to leave all they've known, all their lives in Babylonia, and to go to Jerusalem with Ezra. And as we're going to see in a minute, this is not an easy trip to take. They didn't just get a bus ticket. And so uh, whether or not exactly they were there just because they were comfortable, whether they uh, were there on purpose, that they had a desire to, uh, to continue to, to live for the Lord amongst exile, we're not 100% for sure. But we know that God is moving in these who are on the second wave of these returnees, that he is stirring up again in these families, in these uh, 15 families here. We know that God is at work. And this points us to a rich truth. If I were to give you three points this morning, the first is this, is that God does not leave his people behind. And so these families who were still in Babylon from 80 years ago, those families are not being left behind. God is bringing them to Jerusalem. He is returning these families. He is, these families are experiencing a great reunion, if you will. These that were left behind are now returning to Jerusalem and returning to the families who had left uh, some 80 years ago. And we look at just pure numbers, it's about 10%. We see roughly 50,000 people on the first return, on the first wave, and now we have about 5,000. So about 10%, it's a smaller group, but yet it's still people of God that God is not going to leave behind. So he's using Ezra to grab these families, these particular families to be reunited and to come to Jerusalem. And so it points us to this rich truth that God will not leave his people behind regardless of why these families stayed in Jerusalem for these 80 years regardless of why they stayed behind God is now bringing them out for God loses no one and this points us to just a rich truth go with me to the book of John chapter 6 just such a, a beautiful truth of how God sees his people he will not leave his people behind. He did not leave these families behind in Babylon, just as he does not leave his people behind who were in Christ. When you go to John chapter 6, you can start in verse 35. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Now here's Jesus' mission statement here, his purpose. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. And so just as God does not leave uh, His people behind in Babylon, Christ will not leave His people behind. Jesus came to save all of those who look to Him in faith and repentance. Jesus came to save and redeem His people. And here's the thing, if there's a single person... Uh, who looks to Christ in faith and repentance and is not saved, there's a single person of God who is not saved by Jesus, then Jesus has failed. And we know that God is not going to fail. That Jesus has come for a very specific mission, to not to leave his people behind. God does not leave his people behind. 
Secondly, we see this. We see that Ezra did not leave the priests behind. So we have this genealogical list of all of these families. We see these priests and we see the son of Hattush and they're not left behind. But now uh, Ezra comes to this place in verse 15. I gathered them to the river that runs to Ahava. And there we camped three days. As I reviewed the people and the priest, I found there none of the sons of Levi. Then I sent for Eliezer, Ariel, Shemaiah, Elnathan, Jareb, Elnathan, Nathan, Zechariah, and Mushalem, leading men. And for Joarib and Elnathan, who were men of insight, so leading men and men of insight, and sent them to Edo, the leading man at the place of Casaphia telling them that to say to Edo and to his brothers of the temple servants at the place of Casaphia, namely to send up ministers for the house of our God. And by the good hand of our God on us, they brought us a man of discretion of the sons of Mali, the son of Levi, the son of Israel, namely Sherebiah, and with his sons and kinsmen, 18, also Hashabiah, and with him Jehiah of the sons of Merai with his kinsmen and their sons, 20, besides 220 of the temple servants, whom David and his officials had set apart to attend the Levites. They were also mentioned by name. So Ezra, so he sees getting ready to, to leave, and he, he sets out, and he gets to kind of this first stopping point, if you will. He checks up. And they camp for three days. Remember, they're, they're journeying about five to 7,000 people. And they come to this, uh, to this river here, to the, the river that runs to Ahava. And he does something. He takes inventory of who is with him. He looks at everybody and he notices something. He notices that somebody is missing. The, the Levitical priesthood is missing. Those from the tribe of Levi, the Levite priests, are missing. And Ezra's task is to teach the law of God and to restore proper worship amongst Israel. This is his job. This is his task. This is what God has called him to do uh, as, a, as a spiritual leader of Israel and of the of the, the people of Israel. So this is his task. He knows he can't do this without the Levites. So he says, hey, they're not here. And that's a problem, right? You're about to start a 900-mile journey. What do we do as parents when you leave? At least you should do as good parents. Before you leave, if you got a big vehicle, got a bunch of kids, you should always do a head count, right? So he's doing a head count. He says, wait, one of our kids isn't here. The, the, the Levites are not, no one amongst the Levites are with us. So he tells these men of who to go look for and how to find them and to bring them into the fold. Now, throughout the Old Testament, we see that the Levite priests were needed for the proper worship of God. And as we discovered a few weeks ago, there is a right way and a wrong way to worship God. We don't worship God on our terms. We worship God on His terms. And the people of Israel had very clear instructions of how to worship God, and especially in light of the temple being rebuilt. Now these practices are being reinstituted. And so Ezra knows how important these Levite priests are. Go with me to the book of Numbers real quick, and we'll get some insight into the Levitical priesthood. Numbers chapter 3. Numbers 3 verse, uh, verses 5, I believe it is. Numbers 3, 5. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Bring the tribe of Levi near, and set them before Aaron the priest, that they may minister to him. They shall keep guard over him and over the whole congregation before the tent of meeting as they minister at the tabernacle. They shall guard all the furnishings of the tent of meeting and keep guard over the people of Israel as they minister at the tabernacle. 
and you shall give the Levites to Aaron and his sons, and they are wholly given to him from among the people of Israel. And you shall appoint Aaron and his sons, and they shall guard their priesthood. But if any outsider comes near, he shall be put to death. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Behold, I have taken the Levites from among the people of Israel instead of every firstborn who opens the womb among the people of Israel. The Levites shall be mine, for all the firstborn are mine. On the day that I struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, I consecrated for my own all the firstborn in Israel, both man and beast. They shall be mine. I am the Lord." And so we see this clear calling out of, of the Levitical priests. And you can see all through the Old Testament the role they play in the proper worship of Israel. And so when Ezra looks up and they're not there, this is a big deal. So he has to gather them back to himself and gather him back to the people of God for the proper worship of God. And so just as God did not leave his people behind, Ezra did not leave the priests behind. He did not leave the priest prime because they were essential for the proper worship of Yahweh. And so why were they absent? Why were they not there? Did they just not get the memo? Did they get the group me message? Did they not, you know, get the announcement? You know, the, the flyers stuck all around uh, Babylon that it's time to go? And so again, there's some speculation. We don't know exactly why they're not there. We just know they're not there. Some would say they maybe stayed in Babylon because of the status they had. Uh, and teaching the, the law of God, and they were seen in a different light. Some would say, as they looked to the rebuilding of the temple, they knew their task would have been much different than their task in Babylon. And so maybe they chose not to go for different reasons. But regardless of why they were absent, God used Ezra to gather them back up so that they could return to Jerusalem and continue their divine calling. And although the Levites were essential for worship in the temple, they no longer are. We're not looking for Levites to worship God in the way he has called us to worship him. We need neither temple nor the Levites. Go with me to the book of Hebrews, where the author of Hebrews speaks to this very clearly. Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews 7, starting in verse 11. It says, Now, if perfection had been attained, had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. So he said the priests are going to come from the Levites, not the tribe of Judah. This becomes even more evident. And then another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of his weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. 
The Levites were needed for the people to draw near to God. But we have Christ. We look to Christ as our great high priest who brings us close to the Lord. Christ is our better hope by which we draw near to God. We look to Jesus. And so I see that God does not leave his people behind. And we see that Ezra does not leave the priest behind. And then thirdly, Ezra sought the Lord. Ezra sought the Lord. And I want to spend a, a few minutes here at this last, this last section. Because I see there's just so much, um, there's just so much happening here. So in these few verses, Ezra 8, 21 through 23. And then I proclaimed a fast there at the river Ahava that we might humble ourselves before God to seek from him a safe journey for ourselves, our children, and all our goods. For I was ashamed to ask the king for a, brand of, for a band of soldiers and horsemen to protect us against the enemy on our way. Since we had told the king, the hand of our God is for good, the hand of our God is for good on all who seek him, and the power of his wrath is against all who forsake him. So he fasted and implored our God for this, and he listened to our entreaty. So a lot happening here in just these last few verses of Ezra, of this section of our text, of this chunk number three, if you will. So Ezra has rounded everyone up. He's kind of somewhat started his journey. He's counted the heads, and he's brought the, the, the Levitical priests back into the fold, and he's ready to start on this journey. Now, this is a long and arduous journey. This is about 900 miles that he has to travel from Babylonia to up to uh, Jerusalem. As Adam pointed out a couple weeks ago, when it says up to, this is up to the mountains. And then, so they're not just flat land. They're not in Louisiana. They're not in West Texas, right? This is not an easy trip. It is one that, that the terrain will be problematic. And so you think about this journey that Ezra as a leader knows he's about to take, not just himself, not just him and a band of a few men, but him and five to 7,000 people, men, women, children, young and the old, sick, all sorts of people who are going to take this journey. And he knows that he has certain challenges ahead of him. And just to kind of think through some of these challenges. Terrain being one of them, having to cross mountains and rivers, and just and for us it's no big deal, right? For us we just put in four wheel drive. For us we may hop on a ferry. For us we may do all sorts of things, but they are traveling on foot and in a caravan and whatever means they travel. But it was with no four wheel drive. It was with no ease, with great difficulty. They had to traverse this terrain. The weather would have been a great difficulty, been a great challenge. They would have experienced extremes of weather, extreme heat during the day, extreme cold at nighttime. Proper clothing and shelter would be vital. This took, and we know it took four months to make this journey. We see in Ezra, where he tells us the, uh, how long it took to make this journey. Water and food. It's difficult enough for us to drive 100 miles, right, without stopping three times for water and snacks. They had to get water and food to sustain this group of people for four months bandits in hostile territories surely they would have encountered people who did not wish well on the people of God and so they had enemies to face alongst this four month 900 mile journey navigation how do you even get to Babylon how do you get to Jerusalem from Babylon right you couldn't just punch it in on your phone so making sure they made it the right direction 
the animals. They had to take care of their livestock along the way, not just their uh, their families, not just their, their children, their spouses, not just their friends, take care of one another, but their animals. There's one thing I hate doing in this life. It's taking care of animals. I'm sorry for those who love it. I love my children. I love my family. But they had to take care of the animals in a way that we don't even understand how to take care of these animals. And even in the midst of this, still being true to the Lord and, and following Him in a devout way and, and honoring Him along this way, it wasn't just let's travel, but it was just still travel to honor the Sabbath and not travel on the Sabbath. And, and, and many different uh, turns, they would find these obstacles and challenges. And even the health, very limited medical care. So again, I just want us to kind of put our minds in the framework here of Ezra. As he is this leader of this band of, of five to 7,000 people. And he's about to, to embark on this journey. We get a lot more details now than we did the first wave coming. But we, we get this idea. We get what's weighing on his mind and his heart. So imagine being in his sandals, if you will. This was a major undertaking to lead this group of people, not as their guide, but as their spiritual leader. So yes, they wanted to stop and seek the Lord's guidance. In verse 21, then I proclaimed a fast there. Not a fast to get in shape, not a fast to prepare themselves physically, but a fast to prepare themselves spiritually. They fasted and they prayed, the whole congregation. And what does that do? It's, it puts them in a place of submission unto the Lord. They wanted to submit themselves. And we see that echoed in the second half of verse 21, that we might humble ourselves before God. That Ezra recognized that he and the people of God, before making this journey, needed to humble themselves before the Lord. Now I can only imagine he knew that they would be humbled on this journey and on this trek, but yet they wanted to willingly humble themselves and submit themselves before their mighty God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to seek a safe journey for ourselves, for our children, and all of our goods. Isn't that interesting, right? He's very specific. He's praying for a safe journey for, for the, the people of God, for their children, and for their goods, for their stuff, for their belongings. Someone said, well, God doesn't care about your belongings. Well, Ezra cared. And he went to the Lord and he fasted and he called the congregation to fast and submit themselves to the Lord that he might would deliver them, their people and their goods. So we see that Ezra knew that the only way to make this journey was to submit themselves to God. And there is no hint that this was ceremonial. There's no hint that this was just, okay, we need to do this before we leave. But this was the, 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 the honest sincere desire of Ezra and the people in which he led that they would submit themselves before God it is clear that Ezra was keenly aware of his need of the Lord he was submitting himself and the people of God he knew that was the key to their success not proper navigation not enough food not enough resources because he had all of that, right? The king had given him all of this stuff, all the money, all the resources, everything he needed for worship, all of this stuff. And so they could have left in a prideful state knowing we have everything we need. But he didn't. He humbled himself, and the people of God humbled themselves before God, recognizing their great need 
of the Lord. He knew how much they needed God's hand of protection and provision. And then we come to verse 22, and we get this wonderful bit of insight, unique to what we often get uh, in thinking about recognizing how um, especially these spiritual leaders in the Old Testament thought. He says here, he says, For I was ashamed to ask the king for a band of soldiers and horsemen to protect us against the enemy on our way, since we had told the king, the hand of our God is for good on all who seek him, and the power of his wrath is against all those who forsake him. So he could have gone to, to the king and said, Hey, king, I need a band of soldiers. I need some horsemen. I need some reinforcements. We've got everything you've given us. We're ready to go. Now we need our military escort. He could have done that, but he said, You know what? I feel a little stupid. I feel a little ashamed to do that because I started this conversation with our God is going before us. So he said, how can I go to this king having said that our God is going before us, our God is going to protect us, our God is going to lead us, he is going to keep us. Can you send us some muscle? Can you send us the firepower to protect us? I can't do that. I would be ashamed if I went to the king and did that. Ezra could not in faith ask for the king's help in this way. And this calls to mind several passages. I'll just read these for you. Psalm 20, verse 7. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Psalm 33 says, The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation, but its great might it cannot rescue. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those whose hope is in his steadfast love, that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Isaiah says, Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses, who trust in chariots because they are many and in horsemen because they are very strong. They do not look to the Holy One of Israel or consult the Lord. The author of Chronicles says at the time, that Hanani, the seer, came to Asa, the king of Judah, and said to him, Because you relied on the king of Syria, and you did not rely on the Lord your God, the army of the king of Syria has escaped you. For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless toward him. And finally, Jeremiah says this in chapter 17, 5 and 8. It says, Thus the Lord Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. He is like a shrub in the desert, and he shall not see any good come. And so we see this picture of trusting the Lord. Now, we're going to see a different picture in Nehemiah. And I thought about making that comparison this morning, but we're going to wait till we get to Nehemiah because Nehemiah has a different position in faith where he does seek the king's help. So this doesn't mean we never have a place as believers to seek help from other resources, but he could not do it in faith because he was looking to and trusting the Lord for their provision and protection on this journey. And he could not turn back. He had to continue, not just himself, but continue to appoint his people to trust the Lord that he would provide and that he would protect. But Ezra, they got horses. They got lots of horses. And they gave us all this stuff. Why can't you just, just go ask them for those, for a band of soldiers and for a band of horsemen and for chariots? And you can imagine Ezra even quoting 
scripture to say we're not going to trust in chariots and horses. We're going to trust in our God. I'm not going to shame us and go back to this king. And we find ourselves in a similar position today, a position of walking by faith or by fear. This 900-mile trek from Babylon up to Jerusalem could be seen as symbolic of life. Life is an unknown journey full of twists, dangers, uncertainties, obstacles, challenges, enemies, and temptations. And the only way that we will navigate the journey of life successfully is with Christ as our guide and our shepherd. He becomes our guide whenever we submit to him, first through repentance and then through continually looking to and trusting Christ and not ourselves. And then finally, we see verse 23 here. It says, So when we fasted and implored our God for this, he, and he listened to our entreaty. And he listened to our entreaty. So we fasted, he says, and we implored the Lord. We prayed. We, we humbled ourselves and came before God for this thing, for protection and provision, for keeping them safe on this 900-mile journey, not to leave them nor forsake them. They, they asked the Lord. They cried out to the Lord. And what does it say? It says he listened. He listened to our entreaty. Let us not get caught up in beneficial determinism that we reduce the power and the need of prayer. You see, I've never heard of beneficial determinism because Adam and I made it up this morning. I was going to submit to you positive determinism. But, uh, and Adam made a good point that that sometimes means something different in an academic sense. And so I love this idea. Adam's going to write a book in the next year or so on beneficial determinism. And so we know that God is sovereign. We know that God holds all things in his hands. We know that nothing comes about outside the will of God. But we also know that everything that comes about is beneficial to God's people. That it is for the good of God's people and for the glory of God himself. But let us not get caught up in knowing that to be true, that we don't pray. That we don't seek the Lord, that we don't genuinely come before the Lord and implore Him as the people of God do. They say, we implored Him, we fasted, we prayed, we came before the Lord, we humbled ourselves, and He listened. Some passages, and if you want to write these down, I'm just going to read these for us. Philippians 4, 6-7. It says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Paul says, pray. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 and 17. Rejoice always and pray without, without ceasing, without stopping. Paul says, don't, so not just start to pray, but don't stop praying. And give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. So God says, it is the will of God for you to pray and to keep on praying. To not grow tired of praying. James 5.13 says, is anyone among you suffering? Pray. Let him pray. Jeremiah 29.12, then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. Does you pray and I will hear you. Luke 18, 1, and he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. 
Ephesians 6, 18, praying at all times in the spirit with all power, with all prayer and supplication to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication, making prayers for all the saints. Colossians 4, 12, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. And lastly, I love what Paul says to the church of Rome, Romans 12, 12, rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation and be constant in prayer. So we know that God holds all things. We know that God, that all things that God wills will come about. And we know it is for the benefit of his people and for his glory alone. But yet God calls us to pray and not just whimsically pray, but to genuinely pray, to go before the Lord. So you have struggles in your life, you pray. And you don't pray necessarily the struggles go away, but you just pray that His will be done as Jesus teaches us. We can look to the Lord. We pray constantly, consistently, without ceasing. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation and be constant in prayer. Did Ezra pray that their journey be easy? No, he didn't pray their journey would be easy. He knew their journey would be difficult. But he said, the only way we're going to make it through this journey is if we submit ourselves to the Lord. And so let us be a people who rely on God through prayer. Let us wholeheartedly trust in his sovereignty and in his providence while aligning ourselves to him through prayer. Let us be like little children. Come to the Lord with our woes and our worries and trust that he hears us and he listens to our entreaties. As we know, the Lord cares for his people. Whenever we seek the Lord, we know that he, Ezra did not leave these priests behind because they had a place in worship. And the greatest encouragement, we know that God did not leave his people behind because God will save his people. He will redeem his people. Let's pray this morning. Lord, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for your grace and your mercy. I thank you for this, this word in Ezra, this reminder today, Lord, that we can look to you and trust you and that you will not leave us behind. And Lord, as we journey forward with you, that we do so in a heart and a spirit of prayer. Well, I pray and hope this morning that we've been encouraged by your word, who you are, and how you work all things for the good of your people and your glory. As we continue, Lord, our service this morning, as we continue to sing, Lord, as we come to the communion tables, we have an opportunity to give in every aspect this morning. I pray that Christ is exalted and that we respond to you in true faith. In the name of Jesus, we do pray. Amen.